Good morning. Today's reading uh, from the Old Testament is found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. I'll be reading from today's New International Version, the TNIV. If you read along in the New King James Version, which is in your pew, the reading is found on page 2. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, she said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree above which I command, about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, and you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Today's New Testament reading is taken from Revelation 22, 7-17. If you're reading from the Bibles in the pew, the New King James Version, page 834, we'll be reading from the NIV. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard them, heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, 
that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic crafts, sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root, I am the offspring of David, and I am the bright morning star. Next week, Tim Garrison will be with you because I'm going to be backpacking with the Pathfinders, so pray for me. Apparently, it's five miles in with a thousand foot gain, and that would be okay if we were going from, say, 6,000 feet to 7,000 feet, but we're going from 10,000 feet to 11,000 feet. And I have a feeling we'll be camping on snow because uh, this is the first warm day of summer and uh, things are not melting at the rate that they might. So that's uh, next week. Uh, As for this week, thank you to those who read last minute. We are in the process of shifting the way we coordinate worship and uh, that was one of those pieces that got taken care of later rather than sooner. Excited to have our woodwind section here this morning. Didn't they sound great? And so wonderful to have the bell choir back. Thank you, Bev and bell choir. That was wonderful. You've heard three long passages this morning. Each of them very different. Genesis 3 is a story of its own, the story of the fall of humankind. Genesis 3 is told in the narrative. Strictly speaking, and I I have to be careful of my use of words, and one of the things I'm going to try today as an experiment is if for some reason you don't understand a word that I use, or if I, I use a word in a context that's not familiar to you, just raise your hand, and if I see your hand... Don't push the point, but if I see your hand, I'm going to try to rephrase so that this can be a a time of understanding. Are you willing to try that with me today? So the first word I'm going to use, I'm going to be very careful about how I use because I don't want you to misunderstand it. The first word I'm going to use is mythology. Now typically, when we think of mythology, we think of Greek mythology or Roman, Norse mythology. We think of something that has to do with the stories of false gods. That's typically how we think of it. We think of something that is patently false. Mythbusters, the TV show, is about proving ideas wrong. So, not factual. The real meaning of myth or mythology in the way that I'm using it right now is meaning making. That is to say, it's the way in which we structure a reality or understand something. Is that clear? So Genesis is a kind of, the setting is mythological. I don't mean that, again, I want to be very clear, I don't mean that to mean false or untrue, but it's a story that constructs a reality for us about where we come from, about the nature of who we are, about what we were created to be and do, about how sin changed fundamentally the way in which we saw ourselves and interacted with one another, the way sin fundamentally changed nature as we know it. 
Does that make sense? So it is in that context that Genesis is narrative. It's story about where we're coming from and who we are. When we move to John, John's gospel is perhaps, uh, I hate to use the word the most sophisticated, but in terms of the Greek language in which all the gospels were written, it's the most complex. And it deals with questions that were present at the time it was written having to do with certain understandings and doctrines. Again, uh, certain understandings about the way things are. John lived in a time in which dualism was popular and the dualism I'm referring to was a sort of derivative of the Greek dualism. Now, this is getting kind of technical, I realize. Not 101, but I've I, I got to get this in, in for you here. This dualism, that kind of two poles, two things going on, is what I mean by that, okay, had to do with the material world and the spiritual world. We understand that even today. There are those things we can taste, touch, feel, smell, get a hold of in some way. We're corporeal, we're bodies, we're physical in our being, and yet we understand too that there's something called mind that seems to go above and beyond just material reality. We seem to understand that there is a spiritual reality that is unseen in its presence, seen in its manifestations, seen in its actions, but unseen. And this dualism between what was visible and what was invisible, what was seen and what was not seen, what was understood to be evil because it was material and what was considered to be spiritual because it was something other, was part of the time in which John, the beloved, wrote his gospel. And heresies called Gnosticism were ruling the day. We have a lot of Gnostics living today. A Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, is basically somebody who believes that you are saved through special knowledge. When we read John's Gospel in one of the most famous passages ever written, we read these words, and you can say them with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That simple text speaks of a glorious reality that is present in all the Gospels. We aren't saved because of some kind of special secret knowledge. We're saved because Jesus, who is present in creation, as we'll discuss in John chapter 1, there with God and God, this Jesus comes in the greatest story ever told. This Jesus, in God's self-sacrificing way, gives himself that we might truly live and that no one should perish so John is very explicit and we find another type 
of literature, another type of story as John tells his narrative. It's very cleverly written. It's very complex. Listen to those opening words and see the beauty of it. In the beginning was the word, capital W. And the word, capital W, was with God. And the word was God. It's not something you can just read like a newspaper. It's not something we approach like a blurb on our Yahoo internet server. It is not even the clever writings of a Stieg Larsson or somebody like that. It goes beyond these things in its form, in its prose, in its poetry, and in its meaning. What is communicated is that Jesus is the word who was with God and is God and came and dwelt among us and showed us who God was in love and grace and what his intentions for us really were. Revelation interestingly enough, is written by this same John. But it's an entirely different type of writing. It's called apocalyptic literature. And apocalypsis refers both to Revelation as it's translated, that thing which is going to be revealed yet in the future, that which is to come. And usually in the more uh, common vernacular, we understand apocalypsis to be cataclysm, this sort of cataclysmic end of time. In the apocalyptic literature genre, you find all kinds of images. Many of them are surprisingly fierce. For those of you who took Psychology 101, Carl Jung was one who talked about primordial images. He was one who talked about archetypes. And there are archetypes that speak to various facets of our existence, primordial fears, these things that we have deep within us that just seem to be part of our psyche, like the fear of snakes. A snake is a primordial image according to you. And there are archetypal images for other human activities and experiences. If we take that concept or that idea a little bit, revelation is archetypal. The images spoke very clearly to the cultures. If today I showed you a picture of an eagle with a rattlesnake in it, what would you think of immediately? Great Seal of the United States. Great Seal of the United States? Louder? The Great Seal of the State of Mexico. What does the Seal of the United States have in the eagle's talons? Arrows, arrows on the one hand and olive branches on the other. Peace and power. If I showed you a picture of 
you think of it, these images have meaning. If I showed you the picture of a grizzly bear with stars, what comes to mind? California's flag, the symbol of the great state of California. Grizzlies are generally long gone from California, but nevertheless it remains an enduring symbol of this state. The images of Revelation had great meaning for the people who lived at the time the book was written. We have to do a little work to unpack those. But Revelation is a revelation about Jesus Christ as to what his what is going to unfold as Jesus moves forward in history. And it tells us about the second coming of Christ, about the redemption of the elect and the redeemed. It tells us about our experiences through tribulation, through the millennium, God's actions as he calls forth the faithful from the world. It speaks to terrible, tumultuous events and it speaks to the final restoration of humankind to its pre-sin condition. The renewal of a world and the making of the world anew. It speaks to the completion of God's acts. And so in these passages I hope you can get a hint of the diversity that is a unity in scripture. My title today, The Bible as One Story, is a challenging one for me. Because the Bible is myriads, many, many, many stories. And yet in purpose and theme they come together to illustrate some very large story points. I'm going to highlight a few of them. In literature we would say the Bible as one story is a story of fall and a story of redemption. These three passages I've chosen today highlight that. In Genesis 3 we have the story of the fall of man. And there was one promise who would crush the serpent's head. John 1 doesn't explicitly refer to the crushing of the serpent's head, but it speaks to the incarnation of the one who was with God and was with God in the beginning and through whom all things were made. This creator God now steps down in condescension and becomes redeemer God, one of us, that we might know that the Father is full of grace and truth, that he comes in peace. And we have the story in Revelation, which is the fulfillment of everything that's been predicted and everything that's to come, reminding us of the earth made new and the tree of life from which Adam and Eve were banished in the beginning, accessible once again, and the river of life from which they were banished in the garden, accessible once again. The full circle of fall and redemption. Another way of understanding this might be the way Ellen White, one of our church founders, has crafted it, and that's the great controversy. The Bible is the story of this cosmic conflict between good and evil, and the way in which it plays itself out in every person's life. 
There are numerous stories in Scripture that talk about the lives of individuals. And you see the way in which good and evil present themselves in the lives of those individuals, both in terms of their temptations and in terms of their triumphs. Both in, both in terms of their personal weaknesses and failures and in terms of how God brought great victory or action or success through their lives. The Bible speaks to this conflict, to this controversy between good and evil, between Christ and Satan, in terms that predate Genesis and in terms that find their conclusion with the devil and his angels being cast into that great lake of fire and forever removed and destroyed. The end of evil as we know it and the triumph of good. The salvation that has been wrought in this process. The vindication of God who has been maliciously accused. And the praises of the redeemed as we move to eternity. Another way of understanding this incredible story is simplifying it down to God's movement and interaction among people in history. You don't need great precision and understanding at every point to see simply that God is portrayed and understood and communicated about in human terms and often cultural and human perspective. God appears. God moves. God's power changes something. God acts. And it is God's acts through history, whether acts of creation or acts of redemption, whether it's God's call on an individual as it was to Abraham to step forth and move out of Ur of the Chaldees to a place that he would show him. And God's call upon Abram, Abram to become a great nation, even though he and his wife had no children. And God's call to foreshadow the giving of his own son as a sacrifice by calling Abraham to offer up Isaac, his only son, as a sacrifice. And about God's work in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and God's actions in saving those families through betrayal and jealousy. For Romans tells us all things work together for good for them that love the Lord. One of the things we see in these stories of God's interactions with people is that he is able to take something tragic and make something good. And we can trust that because if we don't see it now, we see it in the fulfillment of time. God calls people. God heals people. God wins wars and battles. God speaks through prophets and chastises kings. We see God's actions through salvation history and a picture begins to form. And it saddens me so when I see people 
secular people sometimes, sometimes people who were raised religiously but burned on religion, mocking the God of the Old Testament, for example. Because in some stories, to our eyes, he appears perhaps capricious. Good, I see a hand over here. He appears to be a God of whimsy. He can be one who helps or one who hurts. He can do great good or great evil. We see in this, in these stories sometimes, a God who could be viewed as hateful, destroying entire groups of people. And comedians and actors and public figures of all kinds, academics, atheists, they take great delight in pointing out these passages the barbarism, apparent barbarism of the God of the Christians or the God that any group would serve. Without paying attention to the picture of the God who acts in history and the vantage point of the story from which that God acts. Let's think about it with me for just a moment. If humankind was created in God's image and for purposes of communion with one another and God, and mistrust of God interfered with that communion, ended that communion, changed forever the way humans saw themselves and understood their world, if we take that story and think about our dilemma, the vestiges of the image of God in us, the remnants of the goodness of God in us that lead us to things like love, human love and compassion, which are wonderful things, God-like things. And then we think about our capacity for evil, for destruction. We think about our capacity for hatred. We think about our capacity to break relationships. We think about our capacity to hurt and to destroy. We have a dilemma. And the God of creation and the God of redemption enters into this dilemma and walks with us in this dilemma and loves us in this dilemma and redeems us in this dilemma. When we see God in terms of the larger picture that he is able to act among us at all, when we see God as one who was willing to take the risk of making a choice, okay, Abraham, if you'll just listen to me, I'm going to credit this to you as righteousness, even to one who was not righteous. Abraham wasn't perfect. Not even, well, especially Abram wasn't perfect, but Abraham wasn't even perfect. His name got changed. We all will be given new names. Did you know that? What a great God we serve. Jacob's name was changed from Jacob 
to Israel, one who has wrestled with God. Now that is the human mix of things, isn't it? We're not talking about perfect clarity. We're talking about a man who wrestled with God, who ended up lame in the course of it, and could do nothing but praise the God of heaven. It's not clean. It's not neat. It's dirty. It's messy. But it's God interacting. Another element that often gets ignored in scripture, we talk about inspiration, which is so important because inspiration is related to authority, and I'll get to that in just a minute when we look at this big picture, this big story. Inspiration is this sense of, and I'm going to give it to you literally, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how this looks and feels. To inspire literally means to in-breathe. What's our word for breathing? The medical one. Respiration. So, you know, when you're watching an old, uh, you know, an old ER show or something, it'll tell you what the heart rate is and what the respirations are, right? They don't say, he's breathing 20 times a minute. They say, respiration's 20, heartbeat 56. I mean, that's, you know, the, the pulse rate or whatever. That's, that's how they, they say it there on TV. Now, respiration to respire is to breathe. So to inspire is to in-breathe. We have a word that predates that in Greek called pneuma. It's used a lot in Christian circles, fancy uh, film companies and so forth. What it means is spirit. When we read about the Holy Spirit in the Greek, it's hagia pneuma, Holy Spirit. And it translates to air, to breath, to energy of life, if you will. It translates to this sense of presence, the air, the breath that we breathe, that which surrounds us, that which is in us. We speak of a God who's transcendent out there sitting on a throne, but we also speak about a God who lives within. Yes? yes. And as we breathe, we are respired. And as we breathe, spiritually speaking, we are inspired. So this Holy Spirit present this one who is with us. Spoke to men and they wrote as they were inspired by this Holy Spirit and the words that they wrote we have as scripture. And we trust that inspiration because when we examine the counsel, when we hear the story of God's interaction with humankind, when we have our own experience of inspiration reading it, we sense the authenticity. We understand the truth of it. We see that it's part of the bigger story. And it is that sense in which 
the Bible has come to us through time, and I'll talk a lot about that another sermon time, come to us through time as something that carries authority. Now, I don't know about you, but I've sort of struggled with authority my whole life. You know? I don't want anybody telling me what to do, how to be, how to think. I have my own ideas about that. And I really don't like authority when it doesn't make any sense to me. My wife, can I tell a ticket story? I just did. Nobody here has ever gotten a ticket, so they can talk to you about that experience afterward and find out what it was like. My wife in her yoga outfit, driving a Toyota Prius, hello, on a back street five blocks from the house to the, uh, to the uh, Pilates studio, doesn't quite stop long enough for the officer down the road looking. There are no other cars coming or going. It's a 30-mile-an-hour zone, and she has not blown through this stop sign by any stretch, just not quite paused long enough to satisfy the officer, according to his own words. So $252 later, we've just paid taxes because what she did was neither immoral nor wrong nor dangerous, what she did was not a sin in any stretch of the word. It just didn't fulfill this peace officer's ideal of what a stop ought to look like. I have problems with that. <laughs> you see, to me, the law ought to at some level be about safety. At some level, it ought to be about something besides taxation without representation. But enough about my problems with authority. I know most of you have problems with authority because you're human. Eve didn't want God telling her what to do in her life either. And when she saw an alternative, aha, this fruit is good for eating, pleasant to the eye, it's going to be delicious, and more than that, it's going to make me wise, it's going to make me like God in such a way that I don't need God, sign me up. And we've been just like her ever since. She is our mama, make no mistake. And how do we help ourselves? And the scripture brings us a powerful authority. Not to hammer one another with, not to beat each other up with, not to misuse or misread. It's not to increase your power over another. It is not to give you a tool for judgment of another. It is given that through this spirit who inspires we might be drawn closer to the one who saves us now and for eternity. And that's the authority of Scripture.
And so we have a story. It's a beautiful story. If you read the whole thing, it's a very long story. And if you're not experienced with parts of it, it can be a very dry, even boring story in places. I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said, Pastor, I've tried to read the Bible, but I get to about numbers and it just, it's over for me. Well, it's over for most people about then. Numbers is an interesting book if you take it for what it is. All of them are. But it doesn't read like a novel. This isn't a cover-to-cover experience. This is something for you to spend a lifetime with. It's that complex. It's that wonderful. It's that powerful. It has that much to offer. And if you've never read the Bible, if you have no experience, start out with the Gospel of Mark. It's short, it's simple, and yet it has a trillion positive things to say about who Jesus was. Matthew's equally wonderful, much longer. Luke has his own agenda, and John is many people's favorites because of its eloquence and beauty. But let's together determine that this great story we have this incredible picture of God we've been given in the context of these stories, let's determine that we will move forward in learning it together. For those of us who know the Bible or think we know the Bible pretty well, let's deepen our experience. And for those of us who are fairly new, who say, you know, I, I've been a Christian a while, but I really, I really haven't read much. Or pastor, when you're preaching about this or this, I don't really get it. Who are you talking about over here? We have time and choice. And we can together acquaint ourselves better with the scriptures, with the stories in the Bible. These stories that fit into the larger story of God's interaction with humankind, of our creation and fall and redemption and the ultimate restoration of humankind and the world, we can find our place there. Because in the meaning-making of Scripture is the power to define who we are as people, what our purpose and value are, what our mission on earth is, what our destination is in death and in eternity. In the authority of scriptures, we could find what it means to embrace the benefits and the chisels of community. We can find what it means to be God's people. So my challenge to you today is to dig a little deeper and let's learn the stories of scripture together. And so, Lord Jesus, love your people. Inspire them to know ever more of you and your word. For your word is our guide, we thank you.